0: You're listening to a podcast of Red Sea Church, a community of faith in Portland, Oregon, where our mission is to draw to Christ, develop in community, and deploy into culture. A few years ago, uh, a New York website uh, called Gawker.com named John Fitzgerald Page quote, the worst person in the world. Now, how does John get the distinction of being called the worst person in the world? Well, John, at the time, was a young professional living in Atlanta, and he was awarded this dubious title after an exchange he had with a young woman on Match.com, the online dating site, and their exchange went public, which is what got him this notoriety. The young lady in question had made some overture to John through match.com by winking at him through the site, and she later in retrospect admitted that she probably should have thought twice since his online username was Ivy League alum. John responded with a short introductory message listing several facts about himself, some relevant and some not so relevant, for example, his height, his weight, the schools he attended, and his fitness regi- regime. He also asked a couple of pointed questions of her. uh, What school she had gone to, what kinds of products she enjoyed, what activities she currently participated in to stay in shape. He seemed especially concerned about his would-be dates uh, uh, that she would misrepresent herself physically because he apparently had been disappointed in the past by this kind of thing. So um, after she received his... Uh, message, she, um, um, she uh, said, you know what, I, I think I'll pass. So she sent a simple two-line response, no thanks. Well, being spurned, John was not happy. So he replied back to her, and I quote, I think you forgot how this works. You hit on me, and therefore have to impress me and pass my criteria and standards. The me and my are in all uppercase. Not vice versa. Six pictures of just your head and your inability to answer a simple question lets me know one thing. You're not in shape. I am a trainer on the side. In fact, I am heading to the gym in 26 minutes. So next time time you meet a guy of my caliber, Instead of trying to turn it around, just go to the gym. I will even give you one free training session so you don't blow it with the next 8.9 on hot or not, Ivy League grad, (laughs) Mansa member, can bench, squat, and leg press over 1,200 pounds, has had lunch with the Secretary of Defense, has an MBA in a top school in the country, drives a Beamer convertible, has been in, in 14 major motion pictures, was on Jezebel's best dress, etc. Oh, that is right. There aren't any more of those." Close quote. So what do you think, ladies? Huh? Okay, remember, his, his username on Match.com, if you're interested, is apparently Ivy League alum, okay? You can- <laughs> Huh? Yeah. What's up? Now, it's obvious that John is full of himself, right? I mean, nobody, everybody understands that John is full of himself, and his identity is clearly based on his resume and his accomplishments and, and himself, okay? What I found interesting just reading that was that somebody with, who is so full of himself felt compelled not only to respond defending himself, but decided to justify himself by attacking someone who said no thanks, when people are that confident, they really are that insecure. You, you might be thinking to yourself, well, I'm not John, okay? I, that's not me. For any list, my sense of accomplishments, or even my own sense of self-worth. And there are some people who have an identity that's very much like John. Their accomplishments, who they are, what they drive, what they possess, it's here, that is good. That's what they put forward, whether it's real or even perception, that is their identity. But on the other side, there's some of us who struggle with those things just in the exact opposite way. We fear the Johns who are that way. We, we, would, it's our, we don't have an exaggerated self-interest. We have actually a uh, weak, insecure. We're fearful. We, um, we, we fear our failures. We're uh, keenly aware of our failures, our weaknesses. We, we envy what we're not. We have self pity, for some people, is a chronic state. And sometimes we can be in one environment and be confident because we can present ourselves one way, and our, but in another environment, our identity is very weak. And, and we vacillate back and forth. But people tend to fall within that spectrum because of the culture, because of the who they are. And, and what we're going to talk about today, we're continuing talking about, is our identities in Christ. Paul, the Apostle Paul, had an impressive resume. He was an impressive guy in a lot of ways. In Philippians 3, Paul says this. He's dealing with some controversy in the Philippian church. He says, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel and the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Wow. Wow. There's a guy who also could appear to be full of himself. Paul is listing his his credentials for them, his pedigree, his social status, his impeccable personal preferences, his performances, his recognition. He's an overachiever. And Paul says, you you guys want to play that game? I'll play that game. This is what I got. But then the very next verses, Paul turns it around and says, you know what? I don't care about that stuff. He says in the beginning of verse 7, he says, But whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Pay attention to that in verse 8. I count everything. All those accolades are, are loss when they're compared with the, notice this wording, surpassing worth. Everything about Christ and knowing Him surpasses all value they possibly can get from the world. And then he goes on, for, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, dung, garbage, poop, fill in your appropriate adverb. Whatever you find repulsive, that's what he considers those, those human uh, achievements. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that has, comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith in the word righteousness, we could substitute the word identity. Paul says, "I want an identity that comes from God and depends on faith, not my achievements. Josh yesterday je- nah, yesterday last week, Josh started talking to where, where do we find our identity, and he shared the ideas of what it is. Our, our first identity was be, that we are image bearers created in the image of God, and then he talked about the uh, distortions of identity that bill clem talks about in his book disciple that uh, my identity a distortion is i am what i do i am what has been done to me i am my relationships roles and responsibilities and then josh went on and said that there are three truths of who we are in christ we i have been justified in christ i am being sanctified in christ i will be glorified in christ that lays the table for where we're going today he just said, this is what it is. And if you haven't heard that message, I strongly encourage you to listen to that. Especially the part about the distortions. The things we value, we think the way it's supposed to be, really isn't. So what is this whole thing of identity? What, what is it? When we say our identity is in Christ, or it's in the world, or in our possessions, or whatever, what do we mean by that? Well, identity basically is what defines you. It's what defines you. It's what's true about you. Um... And, and your perspective of yourself, this perspective, this identity you have of yourself, what you think is true about you or defines you, is what drives your attitudes, your actions, and your emotions. How we perceive ourselves. How we think other people perceive ourselves. Sometimes our identity isn't just by why I do. My identity is actually I'm more worried about what other people think. And there are are three basic ways we get this. From myself, my desires, my experiences, all those kind of things. From other people, whether on a personal level, relationships, or culturally. We sometimes submit to the cultural standards of what it means. Or we can get it from God. The gospel provides a framework for us to be clear about our identities, of who we are, God's view of us. We can. The gospel is, who is God and what has he done for us through Christ? That's the essence of the gospel. Josh has been spending the last two weeks on that. What is the gospel? And in light of that, what is our gospel identity and what it is? But then the next question is, therefore, who are we? And that's what we're focused on. Who is God? What has he done? And now, because of that, therefore, who are we? What's our identity in this whole thing? And then later, we're going to address in this series, what are we to do? In light of who we are in Christ, what are we to do? We're not going to focus on on that today. So if you have responded to the gospel message in faith, your identity is based on how God sees you, even more than how you see yourself or other people see you. Your identity is based on what God says is true about you, whether you feel it's true or not. What does God say is true about you? Um, What God knows you to be and how he understands us and identifies us carries the weight of who we are in Christ. What, What God says about us is true. Sometimes we don't feel that way. Sometimes our emotions, this is part of the thing that I've struggled with sometimes with understanding my identity is I can understand it cognitively. But sometimes I don't feel that way. I don't feel the weight of that. For example, when we sin, we often feel guilt or shame. And, and that's an emotion that God works in us to, to, because we've done something wrong. But if we confess our sins, uh, the Bible tells us, the Word of God says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if I sin and I feel that guilt and shame and I confess my sin to God because of Christ's forgiveness, I should get it. I'm not only forgiven, I'm given uh, all the unrighteousness is removed from me, whether or not I feel like it. Most of us say, well, I still feel guilty. I still feel struggle with that. But the thing to remember is in God's eyes when he's looking at us, it's a done deal. You're forgiven. You're clean. It's not about how you feel. It's about the reality that God says is for us. And that's what we have to focus on. And it's similar with our identities. We allow circumstances or emotions to dictate what we think is true about ourselves. But yet the gospel allows us to reverse that. The gospel says we first think about what is true about ourselves. And then in light of that, what do we feel and act and we do? Paul uh, Josh talked about that we created in the image of God, so I'm not going to spend a lot of that, but that is, there are certain characteristics of us being created in the image of God. But in the fall, when, when Adam and Eve sinned, they brought into the world a distortion of that image, of being image bearers of God. All the things that were true for us in being in the image of God, they, it, they're not, they don't totally go away, but it's a good word, distorted. They're, they're crumpled up, they're, they're mangled. And we function in that mangleness. We reverse the order of things and then think the reversed order is the way it should be. And, and if, if you're a, a not a believer here, you're not a follower of Christ here, what I'm about to talk to you about is about what God says about your identity. For anybody outside of Christ, they have an identity. It's just it's not what they might think it is. If, for example, in Ephesians 2, Paul says this. Paul describes life before believing the gospel. What does it look like? What is our identity before we believe the gospel? He says this in Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Uh, start off right here, identity. You're dead. You're spiritually dead. Unable to revive and resuscitate yourself. Dead people cannot do it by themselves. He goes on. In which you once walked, you lived in that deadness. Following the course of this world, our culture dictated how you lived following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. the Satan and his dominion is the one who influences you. Notice the identity language there, in work of sons of disobedience, family language. We're going to look about that in a little bit. Sons of disobedience. That's who you are, sons and daughters. You're the family who are disobeying God. That's who we are apart from Christ. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived. Everybody, everybody is in the same lifestyle same identities apart from christ in the living um, lived in the passions of our flesh our passions drive us carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were check this out by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind that's our identity apart from christ we are sons and daughters of disobedience we are by nature the essence what's true about us what defines us is that we're children Of wrath God's judgment is upon us and and that is our identity apart from Christ and and that's a bleak thing and that's a reality and if we unpack that we're not going to more and more people would understand those passions that drive us those that the forces outside us move us along but Paul then goes on in these same passage and describes what the gospel changes these things for us remember who is God what has he done who are we And what are we to do? We're just focused on the first three. Who is God? What has he done? Who are we? Listen to the next few verses about what it says about who God is and what he has done and therefore who we are, our identity in Christ. It says, beginning in verse, um, I believe, four, but God being rich in mercy, that's who God is, because of the great love with which he loved us, that's who God is. He has awesome mercy and love for us. Even when we are dead in our trespasses, he didn't wait for us to get our act together. He didn't wait for us to clean things up. Even when we're dead and unable to respond to his love, he loved us and is merciful to us. He made us alive together with Christ. He raised us from the dead. By grace you have been saved. And he raises us up with him and see us with him with heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He didn't just say, okay, you're alive, walk in the earth. I now see you, people, the people who respond to the God. I see you in heaven now with me and the angels and particularly with christ that relationship is a done deal that's how god sees us verse 7 so that in the coming ages he might show his immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in christ jesus both who god is and what he's done for us for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing it is a gift of god not a result of work so that no one can boast that's the gospel what he's done for us verse 10 for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. That's identity. That's who we are. Because of all the other things, we are now different. We are, For we are his workmanship. Whether we feel like it or not, we are his workmanship. We are created, recreated in Christ Jesus because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we go from being son, children, sons of disobedience and children of wrath to being God's workmanship in Christ, raised from the dead and seated with Christ. Our identity is what defines us, what God says is true about us. At Red Sea, we have the Red Sea Pathways. This, this originated a couple years ago because as we said, we want to raise up disciples. We want to be followers of Christ. People naturally responded, well, what does that look like? How, how do we do that? So the whole Pathways uh, initiative by us was to answer that very practically. How do we as individuals, as families, and as a whole church walk in a way that is in truth of the gospel and our identities in the gospel? And this is the way we've come up with. And and so in the center is the gospel. That's the heart. Everything. That's the, the hub of the wheel, if you will. That is the center. Everything is touched by the gospel first and foremost. But before we get to the outer circles about what we're to do, that would be a mistake. Because we then would say, well, the gospel makes us do things. We've got to pay God back and earn his favor and, and give, earn brownie points. Before we get there, we have the black circle. You can't see it as well. The next layer is servants, family, and ambassadors. That's our identity. We go from gospel, who God is and what he's done, to who we are before we ever talk about what we're supposed to do. Now, excuse me. That's what we're doing today. And we've identified servant, family, ambassadors. Now, what we're not saying is, is a couple things. We're not saying that these are the only identities that you can have in Christ. In fact, we're going to look at some other ones today. Okay? We, we, we know that there are other things we can talk about and, and you can have. And they're biblical and they're true and we should learn about them. But what we, And we're not saying that these are the most important from all of them. No, they are key, but they're not just the most important. We can't say this is more important than that. But what we are saying is that we think, based on the Scripture's teaching, and especially the whole of the New Testament, these particular identities are very key, important identities. They pop up, they occur over and over again. So therefore, the sheer amount of talking about them in the Bible shows that the importance. And the way the early church and the leaders of the church thought was through these identities, among others. We also want to be practical. We want to say, you know what, we can't, we can't learn 18 identities and expect to live by it. It just doesn't work. But we can say, we can pick three, and we can run with those, and we can make those identities a dominant influence in our personal lives, in our families, and in our church culture. And that's what our heart is. That's what we want to do with these identities. So we're going to look very quickly at these three identities. Servants, first of all. Servants. We are servants of Christ who submit to Jesus as Lord and serve others in his name paul said this in second corinthians he says for we proclaim not ourselves but jesus christ and lord as ourselves as your servants for jesus sake and and so what i want to do today with these three the servants and family and ambassador my goal my emphasis today we're not going to say everything that could be said about them ain't going to happen um but what I do want to show you is that they're the source of them and they're rooted in the gospel of Christ. We're not going to talk about, okay, so what, what do I do with that? How do I apply these identities? We're going to talk about them in, that in the weeks to come. But what I want to focus on today is that we have, these are true about us because of the gospel, not simply because uh, we... Um, want to do certain things. For example, Romans 6. Let's just walk through this passage. We're we're going to walk through a couple of passages that unpack these identities as a heart of living according to the gospel. Romans 6. Paul's uh, been sharing with them that that the grace is free and they're saved by grace alone. And of course, some people said, well, if we're saved by grace, then we get to do whatever we want. We get to live any way we want. It doesn't make a difference. And Paul's saying, no, it doesn't quite work that way. So we're picking up in the middle of his uh, discussion of that. What then? Verse, uh, Romans 6, verse, beginning of verse 15. Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you, if you present yourselves as anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one uh, of whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who once were slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to see the standard of teaching to which we, have, we are committed. So Let me just pause there. He's saying here, everybody is a slave to something. What determines what you're a slave of is the one you're trying to please, the one you're trying to work towards. It's either your sin, like Paul said in Ephesians 2, the passions of your flesh, if, if that's what's dictating you're trying to please that, you're a slave to that. But he's saying we're not slaves to sin. We're slaves in a different way, to obedience, to what God wants us to do because we want to please God, our Savior and Lord. And he goes on, verse 18. And having been set free from sin, now he's talking about not, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. So now our allegiance of slavery... And you can instead of slave, we can substitute the word servant here. It's, it's, they're similar words. We, we are not servants of sin anymore. We've been set free. We don't have to. But what we get to be now is servants of righteousness. Servants of what God has provided for us in Christ. Verse 19. And I'm speaking in human terms because your natural limitations. For as just, as one, just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness... So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. So he's saying, if you're a slave to sin, and you keep doing that, guess what you get? More sin. But if you decide that you're a slave to righteousness and serving God, and the more you do that, guess what? The better you get at obeying and serving God. That's the tension. Either way, you're serving one or the other. In verse 20, he goes on and says, For when you were slaves to sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at the time? From the things of which you are now ashamed. And in the end of the, for the end of those things is death. Verse 22, but now that you have been set free from sin, you have become slaves of God. You have become servants of God. That's an identity. When we're free from sin because of Christ's death on the cross, we are not servants of sin anymore. We don't have to. What we, we are now, though, our identity is we are servants of God who freed us from that. And he goes on um, in saying those things. Sin is not the, not the only thing we serve. Sin is a key thing it's in serving in the Bible, but our identity is wrapped up in all sorts of things of our success and failure, of accumulating accomplishments, possessions, social status. There's a lot of things in our culture that we are slaves to and that we find our identity in. Jesus dealing with that said these things he said no one can serve two masters either he will hate the one and love the other or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other you cannot serve both god and money and he doesn't mean just cash he means possessions wealth accumulation of things material things so here's what jesus is saying you're going to serve one or the other you're going to serve god or you're going to serve or you're going to serve uh, wealth and the social status pick one it's going to be one or the other. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4, this is how we should regard us as servants of Christ and and the stewards of the mysteries of God. It's interesting I found as I studied this as servants that and many of the guys who many of the authors of the New Testament begin their letters with identifying who they are. Paul, James, Peter, Jude and John, who all write letters in the New Testament, all begin with identifying themselves first as servants of christ i think that's significant they they had a lot of other they could have said i was with jesus they could have said a lot of things about themselves like i was here when the church started like, whatever whatever i wrote i'm writing books of the bible I, they could say but they chose not to paul says paul i'm a servant of christ called to be an apostle james james a servant of god and of jesus our lord peter simon peter a servant of the apostle of christ jesus jude Jude, a servant of Christ Jesus and the brother of James. Jude's an interesting guy. Jude begins his letter by saying, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. James, he's talking about, is the only James alive at the time, who was an apostle, was the half-brother of Jesus. So, because Jesus Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, virgin birth, okay, okay, Mary had other children. Those other children would be considered, like in our culture, half-brothers. Does that make sense? Because okay, some of you are like, what? Jesus had brothers and sisters? Yeah, he did, physically. Okay. Okay. Jude says, I'm a servant of Christ first, and I'm the brother of James, who is the half-brother of Jesus. In other words, Jude considered being a servant of Christ more important than name-dropping that he's Jesus' brother. He could have said, I'm the half brother of Jesus, I got something to tell you. He didn't. He said, No, I'm a servant of Christ. And if you're not clear which Jude I am, I'm his brother, James's brother. He didn't point himself out to, to, to that. I think the emphasis there is in Jude's humility and the essence of who he identified himself as his identity is, I'm a servant of my brother. That's who I am. John begins his book of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ, to which gave to him to show the servants of the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending an angel to his servant John. So John writes the book of Revelation to the servants of Jesus as being a servant of Jesus. Now, as I thought about being a servant, as I think about this kind of thing, in our, and, and, and I think it runs, I know, it runs contrary to how our culture is. Being a servant just isn't something that naturally we aspire to, is it? We don't, we don't aspire in our culture individually, in our culture, to do things. Our, our grandsons, Jesse and, and Landon, run around often, and they say, I want to be Superman. I'm Superman. I'm Batman. I'm Spider-Man, depending on the pajamas they happen to have on at the time. In fact, yesterday, I came home, and Jesse's wearing this shirt. I want to be like Superman. That, that's our culture. He didn't wear a shirt, I, I really want to be a servant, did he? Kids don't tell you, when I grow up, what I want to be, I want to be a servant, right? They, they don't say that, and I'm going to guess if they did, as parents of probably say, set your sights a little higher, right? It, what, what, you know, college students, they're, they're in the, trying to get to know each other, and they're in a student union, or a coffee shop, or a pub, wherever they were speaking, and they would say, hey, get to know each other, and say, hey, what's your major? Oh, I'm pre-med. Oh, okay. What's your major? I'm pre-law. Oh, Okay, what's your major? I'm pre-servant. Wow! Really? That's so cool. I tried to get into pre-servant program but I couldn't make it so I chose pre-med. I really wanted to be pre-servant. Those conversations don't happen. Well, maybe after the third or fourth beer they happen but they don't normally happen. (laughs) Our culture has this thing about being servants. It's belittling to be a servant. It's unimportant. It's degrading to be a servant. So to say that our identity is first and foremost, our first identity we pick is to be servants of Christ, lacks a little bit of motivation and attraction, I'm going to guess. And yet the gospel should help us understand that that's reversed. Jesus had to deal with that very issue a number of times with his own disciples. The world as a whole, but his own disciples. They argued about this a number of times. A couple of them even had mom come to make the case for them. It was that important about status and power. And this is Jesus' response to them. He says, Jesus called them together. This is powerful. He calls his disciples together, the twelve. Sit in a circle. I'm doing this eye to eye with you guys. You need to get this down. He says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever should be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Why? Why? Just because he's trying to do something different? Just because Jesus is countercultural? Just because he's a nonconformist to the culture? Or he has a thing against government? No, in verse 28, he tells us why. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Why does Jesus call us to servanthood? Because he's the epitome of serving. He came to serve, not to be served. He deserved. He created the entire world. He deserved to be served. He said, no, I'm going to set that aside. Not only am I going to serve, I'm going to die for the people. I'm going to ransom them back who reject me in the first place. Now talk about serving. That is the epitome of serving. Dying for people who hate you and reject you. That's the gospel. And that's why Jesus can call us into being servants. The next identity is family. Family. We are family in Christ. ...who love each other as brothers and sisters. In John 1, he says this. John says this. The true light, which gives light to everyone, has come into the world. He was in the world, but the world has, was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. Verse 11. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. So that's just he's setting the context here. He's saying, Jesus, the Son of God, who created the entire world, became part of that creation... And, and the creation rejected him. Didn't, didn't recognize him. Then, and then he says, he also not only that, but he came more specifically to the nation of Israel. And the nation of Israel rejected him. He's the Messiah. He's the Savior. He's the Christ. That's who he is. And they rejected him. But then John continues. But, verse 12, he begins with but. Here's a contrast. But to all who receive him, who believe in his name, who respond in faith. He gave the right to what? Become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Those who respond to the gospel message are, respond, and what they receive, he says in these verses, John says, is that they change families. They are now children of God. One of the misconceptions of our culture is that everybody, every people, are all children of God. Let's just love each other because we're all children of God. Let's just get along because we're all children of God. That's not a biblical concept. We're all created in God's image, correct. But the only people called the children of God, or children of God, in the Bible, in the New Testament, are those who respond to Christ in faith. They're the ones who are born again. Those are the ones who regenerated. When Jesus became, was born of the virgin birth, in other words, there was Mary physically, there was a woman named Mary, and the Holy Spirit came upon her, and there was a miracle of being born, conceived. That, that same kind of language of regeneration, of being rebirth, is used by John to say, that happens to us. Remember, we're dead in our sins. We can't do anything. We're raised. Here's a case where we don't exist. We're reborn. We, we are regenerated. And now we're part of the family. In Galatians 3:23 through 29 Paul extrapolates this a little bit more. He says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under law, imprisoned until the coming of faith was revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So law pointed the way to Christ. This is what, how you get to, by grace, try to keep the law. You can't do it. Oh wait, here's the gospel. That's what he's trying to say. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under the guardian. Verse 26, For in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. Again, he says we're in the family. For as many of you who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So, so when we are baptized in Christ, we identify with his death, burial, and resurrection. We are now part of who Christ is. Verse 27, For as many of you as been baptized, um, excuse me, 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, There is neither male nor female, for you're all one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. What Paul is saying here is when you respond to the gospel of faith, things change dramatically. One, you are now a son and daughter of God. Two, all those things that divide us, all the things that false identities are are based on uh, in, in our culture, such as ethnic background, cultural background, gender things, they're gone. They're not relevant to who you are in Christ. Now are, there's only one status. You are children of God. And then we are heirs. What do we, what's the point of being an heir? There's an inheritance. There's something coming, big time, that you get. But we didn't get that before. We got judgment before, but now we get an inheritance. Those things, Paul says, change. He goes on in, in Galatians 4, to expound he says, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, Born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law. Why? So that we might receive adoption as sons. Verse 6 And because you are sons, God has sent his spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but you are a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This concept of adoption is huge. We, in our culture, it's not as familiar as in other cultures. It's not the significance of it, probably unless you've been adopted. Is kind of, we've kind of lost the, the umph of that. Adoption is a change of relationships. It's being brought into a new family with full legal rights. Now, when Christ died for our sins, we are justified. The, the, we, the payment, uh, we are forgiven, forgiveness of sins... And the payment for our, our debt is paid for. The, ju- the justice is satisfied so that we're not being punished. That's awesome. That's a huge blessing. But if that's all God gave us, we're basically back, back to ground zero. We're back to just being sinless. Okay, well, that's good, but can we get better? And he does. That's what Paul's saying in this passage. We're not just justified. We are adopted. We, we get full rights as children of God. We become sons and daughters. We become heirs. That's huge. We don't, we don't just get forgiven. We get to inherit all the things, all the great blessings of Christ. We're going to see when we go through Ephesians. Every blessing in Christ, and there's a lot of them, we get in Christ because we're now children of God. We're adopted into the family. Now, who initiates adoption when you're adopted? Do the kids or do the, do the, the parent, the would-be parent? This is a tough question parent good answer okay good one okay it wasn't a trick question the parent does you know we don't say to somebody think of somebody you would like to be your dad or mom you know Bill Gates Warren Buffett I like Warren Buffett's a great guy I mean he's a nice old man billionaire Do, do I walk up to his door knock on his door and say hey hey Warren dad guess what I decided I want to be your son and maybe get a little inheritance so I've adopted myself into your family what do you think can I come in What's he going to do? Yeah, bye. Okay? It's a little, little facetious example. But we, who, why do we get such a blessing? Because, because we decide we want those things? Besides, we get to go grasp those things? No, because God said he initiated that with us. He took it. The gospel is that God takes the initiative, provides the means for us becoming children. Not because we grab it. He generously gives it to us. He invites us into it. That's what's part of the awesomeness of adoption. And there's other family language in, in the Bible. Sometimes we miss it, and, and we're going to look at it sometimes. Uh, often Paul uses the word brothers. Other, other writers use the word brothers. That is the, the uh, plural male, Eldelphi, often translated brothers literally, is the male plural collective noun, which means you guys, and depending on the context, Okay. So in a lot of the places where it says, these brothers did this, it's like, it's like we would say, hey, you guys need to all watch the Super Bowl today. I, I can speak to men and women together collectively in the male. It's okay in our culture to do that. It's okay in our culture to do that. So I say that because even language of family like brothers and son includes women. And we already said that the barrier between men and women has been removed in Christ. And Paul, for example, often talks about the household of God. I, I also thought about a problem as I was thinking about being family, Okay, being family, is that desirable, like being a servant? Now, for some people it might be, especially if they, their family background, they didn't have much of one. It was very hard. But I think for a lot of us, our experiences with our natural fam- families, uh, our worldly fam- earthly families, biological families, taint our appreciation for God's family. We bring some of that, if I said baggage, to the church, to the, being part of God's family. We think of the hassles of having a family, the tensions of having a family, the sibling rivalry of having a family, the dysfunction and abuse that happens a lot in families, the mundane routines of being in a family, the poopy diapers, the vomiting kids at 2 a.m., you fill in the blank. Family sometimes doesn't bring this aura of excitement, oh, I get to do that. It's like, man, this is exhausting. This is messy. This is a burden to have a family at times. And we bring that. And so when we say, hey, our identity in Christ is that we're family together. Oh, great. I get to add more mess to this. That's hard sometimes for us to think about. But, but John tells us, he says in 1 John 3.1, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. When we we struggle with with, uh, our identity as being part of a family and we're working through those kind of things, one of the things that we need to understand is that uh, what we need to focus on is not the hassles, not the relationships. It is on the reason we're family is because God loved us so much. And he decided to bring us into the family. And here's the thing, including all the messiness and dysfunction that you bring to the family and I bring to the family he said, I know that. In fact, I know it more than they do. I want them in the family. And that's what he wants to work through. The gospel, is an expression of God's love and power that can and will overcome the messiness and dysfunction of our church family. The last one, ambassadors. We are ambassadors for Christ entrusted with the ministry and message of reconciliation. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5. He says um, verses 16 to 21. Now uh, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, what? He is a new creation. That's identity language. That, he's, we could have said we are new creations in Christ would have been an identity we could have run with. We are new creations. We are new creatures in Christ. Why? Because we are, if anyone is in Christ, has responded to the gospel. The old, He explains, the old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. Notice in verse 18, all this is from God. All this is from God. We don't earn it, we don't deserve it, we don't get it. All this is from God. What does he mean? Who, through Christ, reconciled us to himself. Who does he first identify that reconciled to God? We are reconciled to God. Through Christ, we... Come to God. Reconciled means that there's two people or persons or parties that are in an animosity with each other, are fighting. There's a barrier that makes them in conflict. Reconciliation, whatever that causes is removed and therefore those two parties can come together in peace and in shalom. That's reconciliation. He's saying, in Christ you guys, he's writing the Corinthians you now have that peace that shalom because of what Christ has done. He has given that to us. And then he goes on. Second half of verse 18, and he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. I think that's one of the mysteries and one of the wonders that I, I God didn't ask, but I think I would never would have come up with this. Let's see. I'm gonna God's gonna reconcile you and me, sinners, rebellious people, to Himself at His own cost. Then He's gonna turn over the responsibility of doing that to other people to us who He just reconciled. Okay, that's like saying. You know, uh, you're, you've, you're millions of dollars in debt I'm going to pay your debt now I want you to go out and be a financial consultant uh, I don't know if I don't trust somebody like that with all my money but that's what God does that's what he says here and then he goes on verse 19 that is in Christ God is reconciling the world to himself who's doing the work God is reconciling the world to himself every place in the world God is doing the work he's drawing people to himself making sure they, they receive the peace not counting their trespasses against them. That's the gospel. And what else? Entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. He's entrusted. We're stewards. Here's something really valuable the message of the gospel. I'm giving it to you guys. Now go out and share it. That's what he's saying. Verse 20. Therefore, therefore, because all this is happening, God is doing this and has invited us into it. Therefore, verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ. That's identity. We are ambassadors christ and god is making his appeal through us that's amazing to me god makes his appeal through us that's how other people hear about the love of christ that's how other people hear about the peace and the confidence they can have in christ that's how other people can hear about getting rid of those false dysfunctional identities and hear about their identity in christ because we tell them that's what he's saying And he goes on. God is making making the appeal. God is doing the work, but he uses us as conduits, as instruments. And then he goes on. Well, what does that mean? What does that look like? We implore you on behalf of Christ. We beg you to be reconciled to God. Why? Why? Verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the summary of the gospel. As ambassadors, we represent the king and the kingdom. As ambassadors, we are commissioned by the world's highest authority to do things as his representatives. And and, and, and at the end of Jesus' life, before he ascended, we have in Matthew 28, the last things he says to his disciples before he takes off. And one of the things he said, Jesus came to them and said, all authority, all authority in heaven and on earth. Now, in my estimation, I'm not an expert in all authority, but that sure pretty much covers it. All of heaven and all of earth, he's got it down. All, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. I am now the Lord and Savior of everything. What does he say? What's the very next thing he says? Therefore, because of that, go and make disciples of all nations, all ethnic groups. You are to make disciples of. We are, in other words, ambassadors for Christ. Whether or not we feel like ambassadors, whether or not we like the responsibility, we are ambassadors for Christ. And that's part of the problem, I think, of just like there's problems with the other identities, with problems as I thought about ambassador. It's not a word we use often. We don't use it. It's not common in our language. It's also a word that we use, and we think of it as being some kind of political realm. It's limited to that. And even then, it's kind of out of reach. They're kind of an eclectic group of people. And because of that, we, and then we also think of well, ambassador, that sounds like a lot of responsibility. Uh, looking through that passage in 2 Corinthians 5, that's a lot of responsibility. I'm not sure I'm really into taking that on. And yet, understanding this, that we are chosen, that God has chosen to reconcile the lost world to himself through using us, can be intimidating and overwhelming. But that's the reality of what he's called us to. That's the privilege of what he's called us to. In Acts 1, Jesus says this. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Uh, your influence with the gospel is going to grow. Right where you're at, it's going to go out, and it's going out, it's going to be out. But notice the two statements of fact. You will receive power. You will be my witnesses. It, it's not an option. It's not something we get to choose. I'll, I'll do the witness thing. No. He's saying those two things are going to happen. The, one of the, when we struggle with being ambassadors, what we really do is we cut ourselves off from experiencing that power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. He said, you will receive power by the Holy Spirit and you will be my witnesses. When we pull back from being witnesses, from being ambassadors of Christ to the world around us, we are in, in, in essence, limiting our experience of the power of the Holy Spirit working in our life. I want to wrap up by helping us work through a couple questions. How do we know if we're thinking right about our identities? How do we know if we're, if we're thinking right about our identities? How, how do we know if we're basing our identity on the gospel and not on other things like our accomplishments or other people's view of us and those kind of things? How do we know if we're looking through the lenses of our identities in Christ as servant and family and ambassador? How do we know? What what could help us figure that out? I have two questions you can ask yourselves. This is not in the handout. I forgot to put it in there. These these are two questions. So Okay, I'm facing a situation. Okay, am I really operating? Am I thinking about this as my identity in Christ, servant, family, ambassador? These two questions can help you out. First question. Is my identity what defines me in this moment, based on something I earn or something I receive? Is it based on something I earn by my accomplishments, my doing? Or is it something I receive? We are servants of Christ and family in Christ and ambassadors of Christ because of the calling and provision of God. We are servants because he has set us free from sin and we are now free to serve him. In family, we are adopted into his family because of Christ. As, as, as ambassadors, we are reconciled to God and entrusted with a ministering message of reconciliation. Those are things we didn't earn. We don't accomplish that. We receive all of those. So if you're functioning and facing a situation saying, okay, is this something I have to do to get, define me? Or is it something I already am because of what Christ has done? then it's right identity we we, as christians we are followers of christ we are defined by god's action in us god's relationship with us and god's purpose for us not ourselves the second question to help us figure this out is my identity based on something i can lose is my identity based on something I can lose? If I'm saying this is who I am, this is what defines me in my life, this is what it makes it, if I lose that, what will happen? Will it be a crisis? Will, will it change how I define myself? Physical beauty and physical strength? There, I don't know. i Am I in my mid-50s? Newsflash. It goes away. Okay, I don't want to depress anybody here. Okay. Enough said, okay? <laughs> Intelligence. We're, we have some family members who are fi- struggling with dementia. Does that change who they are or how they define themselves because they can't think anymore? Reputation. Can somebody take your reputation away? Your social acceptance, how other people view you, like you, don't like you, can that change? Your social media avatar Are you something else there than you are in real life? How about your job? I am my job, and then you get fired. Wealth, possessions, even, even things, this is hard sometimes for us, even things like marriage and kids. Even things like marriage and kids can be a false, distorted identity. Can your marriage be taken away? Can you lose that? Yep, in a number of ways. You could lose it through divorce, through death, or just plain disappointment. But does that change how you define yourself if that happened? Hobbies, you, you fill it in. In the gospel, our acceptance, security, and significance in Christ cannot be lost. It cannot be lost. When we're servants of Christ, family in Christ, ambassadors for Christ, Nobody can take that away from us, regardless of our physical, mental, financial, relational aspects of our life. Those remain the same because they're in Christ, not in ourselves. So we can function out of that instead of fearing losing those if our acceptance, security, and significance are in Christ. Does that make sense? Now, what do we do with this we'll talk about it in the next couple of weeks. How do we apply that identity? in practical ways we're going to talk about who is God what has he done who are we that's what we're talking about yesterday last week and today what are we to do that's where we're going with this but if we're not coming out of what we do out of our identities then it's just another works trip and as you go up today and take communion as you go and share in in, and if you're a believer in christ if you responded to the gospel message that christ has died for your sins in repentance and faith I inv- whether or not you're part of Red I invite you to come up and share in communion as, a, as we start singing and worshiping. And as you go up there, all of you today, as you go up there, I would ask that you think, as you approach the table and think of the body of, body of Christ represented in the bread broken for you and his blood spilled for you, the forgiveness of sins, also remember of who you are in Christ and give thanks to him for your identity. You are servants of Christ. You are family in Christ. And you are ambassadors for Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for what you do in us and through us. We thank you, Lord, that we cannot lose our acceptance, security, and significance in you. We thank you. It's based solely on your fabulous and immense love and mercy and passion that you pour out on us and is rooted in what Christ has accomplished for us on the cross. I pray, Lord, as we go and we worship, We do so in a way that is exalting to you. Let our hearts be receptive to the work of your spirit and may we respond in praise and glory to you for your awesomeness. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Red Sea Church. If you would like more information about Red Sea, including more audio messages, please go to our website at www.redseachurch.org. If you would like to contact Red Sea, you can email us at info at